It's good to have you all here. My name is Tim Smith. If you're a guest with us, we're really glad to have you with us tonight and for our special observation of Good Friday. Because, and, and Good Friday is really, I've already been asked this question once, what's so good about Good Friday given what happened on it? And you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, is that in the context of what the Lord did, it cost him, there was nothing good that happened to him on this day. It cost his father a great deal as well. And so in that regard, there was nothing good there, except for by their actions and by the sacrifice of our father and his son, we were given all the good. We were given all that we were lacking. We were given everything that we needed to be reconciled back to God and to be able to have eternal hope. And that's what makes Good Friday good, not because it was good to see a sinless, innocent one crucified, but because we, as his creation, received good. And so that's why we call it Good Friday. I said in my afterthoughts email to you this week that there have been marches for all kinds of causes throughout all generations. And like, for instance, this one here, this is from 1969. It's the Vietnam protest march. This is the one that Forrest Gump was at. Remember, Ginny came from over here on the side and ran out in the water, and he ran down. The very next one was the Million Moms March. And that one was shy about 300,000 people. They had only 700,000, but still, that's a giant crowd out there in Washington, D.C. And then um, uh, our annual, the annual March for Life um, in 19, 2013, they had 750,000 estimated people descend upon D.C. in the coldest month of the year. They need to observe that in a different time of year, in my opinion. And then just last week, they had about 200,000 people descend upon D.C. and all over the nation, really, for the uh, march against gun violence. But our services this weekend will commemorate when only one person marched. Over 2,000 years ago, Christ marched alone to a place called Golgotha. And we live because he marched. We live because he walked up that hill and he died and then rose again from the dead. And tonight we are gathered here, as one writer called it, for the supreme paradox. The day when perfect, sinless Son of God is crucified for the sins of others. He dies a death that was rightly assigned to others. But before we look at what happened on the cross that day, and in particular, one particular statement we're going to focus on today, let's remind ourselves of everything that had happened that week leading up to the crucifixion. And as you know, they call it the Holy Week or Passion Week. It began on Sunday. As the Lord was coming into Jerusalem to observe the Passover celebration. And so as he arrives, the people, just the general people, they began to lay down palm branches and their cloaks in front of Christ and the donkey he was riding on, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and proclaiming him as a king as he came into the village that night, into the city that day. And then once he arrived in the city, that's called the Palm Sunday, as we observe it, or the triumphant entry. When he arrives, he visits the temple, and then in his discussion that day, he predicts his death once again. Monday and Tuesday of that week, he really spends Monday and Tuesday instructing his disciples. And then his favorite pastime, his favorite hobby was confronting the Pharisees, like, you know. And so that's what he did Monday and Tuesday. 
On Wednesday, we have no record of anything that Christ did, but we do have record of the religious authorities plotting to kill Christ. Then on Thursday, Thursday begins the activities that so many of us are familiar with. Whether we know we're familiar with it or not, we're familiar with it. Because when I say Leonardo da Vinci in his famous painting, you think of 12 men gathered at a table, that's Thursday. When we talk about the upper room, that's Thursday. When we talk about washing feet, that's Thursday. Because on Thursday, Christ begins to observe the Passover meal. He gathers his disciples and a few close ones there in the upper room. It's also called the Last Supper. And there, he disrobes down to just his cloth wrapped around him, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And he begins to instruct them like last instructions. And he begins to say, as I have done, you should do also. And in a sense, he's given them a farewell speech, although they're not quite aware of that yet. And he talks about his betrayal by one at the table. He tells Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter denies that before he denies the Lord for three times later that night. And as the time closes, as the night grows way, way into the night, they leave the upper room, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where they will pray. And after midnight, while in the garden, that night, everything he said was going to happen begins to happen. Christ is betrayed, and he's taken before the Jewish authorities to witness their ac- and where they are going to address their accusations. And as the night wears on into the early morning, Jesus appears before Pilate, and then he appears before Herod Antipas to hear the accusations. And both of them, sending back, declaring basically they find nothing wrong. They don't want any part of it. And Pilate almost goes into a panic because he truly wants nothing to do with the man. His wife has even sent him a note and says, have nothing to do with this innocent man. And Pilate can't get away from it. The Jewish authorities have, uh, have assembled a throng, a mob, who are screaming for his death and screaming for his crucifixion. And if he doesn't give them what they want, they will riot. And the news of the riot will go to Rome. And then what comes back from Rome on him is something he doesn't want to deal with. And so instead of, instead of dealing with Rome and the emperor, he decides to crucify an innocent man. But he makes a symbolic gesture, doesn't he? There's another time, washing his hands of it. So he takes a bowl of water, he washes his hands, and says, my hands are clean in regards to this man. And then the people, the people, the Jewish people, his own people, said, let his blood be upon us. And so Pilate has Jesus scourged. He has him whipped and turns him over to the religious leaders. After he is marched from Jerusalem to Golgotha outside of the city where they would do a crucifixion and execution because it would be inappropriate by their customs to do it in the city. And he's taken out where he's nailed to a cross. He's hung there to die in a spectacle for all to see and to mock. And his body is terribly beaten as only the Roman cohorts would do to a body as they punish someone. All of his clothing is stripped from him as he's nailed to the cross. His back is ripped open from the scourging, and his his brow is torn and cut by the thorny crown placed upon him. His face is bloodied and swollen and bleeding 
by the beating of the guards. His hand and feet are pierced by the nails. Nails that should have been in our hand and feet. Scripture records a variety of things that took place in the following hours. The soldiers gamble for his tunic. The mocking of those who pass by. Those who even begin to think that this is an afternoon entertainment. So they'll stand and watch the horror of a man dying. Then two criminals on either side of him. One mocks him. Both of them mock him for a while. Finally, one repents. And then the heartbreak of a mother watching her son perish. Well, on the cross, the Lord makes seven statements, some of them very, very simple, almost unnoticeable. It's interesting that the people who wrote down these details recorded, he said, I thirst. But then he said some other things, and one hardly just heartbreaking. As he looks down upon his mother while he's nailed to the cross, and he looks to John, his friend, and he says, take care of her, she's yours. But the statement that we'll focus on today, and we'll give our attention to, is from Matthew 27, verses 45 through 46. From the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22.1, where in Psalm 22.1, the psalmist wrote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you refuse to help me or even listen to my groans? That entire psalm is really a prophetic psalm that God's Spirit had moved in the psalmist to write down ahead of time. And really the very words, the very, the very experience that Christ is going to have thousands of years later, the psalmist has recorded ahead of time. And in those words, we hear the utter despair. We see something we can't even begin to explain or understand in our finite mind. How is it that Christ can feel forsaken? How is it that he can feel some kind of utter loss when there is a trinity and the two and the three of them are knit together? Can you begin to embrace the sorrow of this father? Because this is the father who is sending his own son to die. That's what he sent his son to do. That was the mission he sent his son for. The father was fulfilling the purpose for Jesus in coming to earth by having him crucified. And in these nine words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The unimaginable has taken place. The son is bearing the full wrath, the full punishment of all of mankind's sin on himself. And with that, separation from his father. Jesus, this was not a surprise to him. This was not something he wasn't expecting. This is not a quirky turn in a story. Jesus knew why he'd came to earth. In John 20, 27, 12, 27, he says, Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came for this hour, he says. And then in John 18, 37, he, he's speaking to Pilate now, and he says, For this I have been born, and for this I've come into the world, world to bear witness to the truth. And then in the garden, in Matthew 26, he prays, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will be done, your will be done. Jesus was fully aware 
of what was to come as the night wore on. He knew of Judas's betrayal, of Peter's denial, of the false claims to come, and ultimately of his death. Jesus was fully human. His body experienced pain just like yours and mine did. But I don't make any kind of assumption that he was so superhuman that he didn't care about the pain that was to come upon him. I believe that he did care about that. I believe he was going to suffer, and he knew it. But I don't believe that he was praying about being preserved from the physical pain of crucifixion. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the proclaiming angel in Matthew 1 said, when she's announcing the baby, she says, This one, this child will take away the sin of the world. Jesus knew the violation that sin was to God. He knew the offense it was to God. He knew that sin demanded punishment and justice. He knew the master plan of God was to make a way for man's sins to be paid for them. Not because God was just a benevolent, good old man in the, in the sky with a long beard and a flowing robe like he's pictured in the comics. Not because of that at all. He, it wasn't like he was trying to pay for something to, to avoid the inconvenience of mankind having to pay it. It's not like God could pay, it's not like man could pay it and God didn't want to impose upon him. That's not the case at all. Man could not pay the penalty and live because the payment was death. It had been predicted since the Garden of Eden when God had said the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the only payment that could satisfy the justice of God was the sinless, spotless, perfect lamb. The template had been laid in the Old Testament law that the shed blood from a spotless lamb could blem- without any blemish could make temporary atonement for sin. And now here, mankind finds himself stained by sin and unable to escape his evil ways. And there is not a single spotless one among us. There's not a single one of us without blemish. There's no one who can stand before a holy God and say, I can be here without payment. There's no one who can stand before a holy God and say, I can pay my own debt. Because none of us are sinless. So mankind is found wanting and without any options for his situation. But the plan that had existed before time began unfolds in horror and blood. The offended king, the offended God, he himself supplies the payment owed to him. And it's not from his excess. It's not from his pocket change. He doesn't find something lying around that he's not using and throws it in the pot. Not at all. There is only one solution because there is really only one spotless lamb. There's only one who is sinless and qualifies. And the offended king supplies the payment that mankind owes. The payment that you owe. The payment that I owe. He sends the payment. And that payment is in his one and only son. His one and only son to pay the penalty that we owe. Jesus owed no penalty. But he was the only one worthy 
to pay the debt. And he, like his father, did not pay the debt with pocket change for the only payment acceptable, the only satisfaction to his father was the death of the son. It was his own death that was the only satisfaction to his father. Can you grasp the situation? The justice of the father says that a penalty is owned and the only one who can pay it is the son. And the only other player on this stage is me and you. The only other player on the stage is me and you, those of us who have sinned willfully, wantfully, eagerly. So there's sinful us, sinless God, sinless Jesus, and a penalty is owed for what we've done. And the Father and the Son say, we will pay the penalty for the creation. We'll pay it. So the Father sends his Son to pay the penalty for us. And the Son says, I will obey the Father and do as I'm told. I will obey the Father and do what I came to do. It's unthinkable. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The pain Christ was feeling, the pain that he was praying about, was not the physical pain that man would inflict. It was the relational pain of his father forsaking him. Arthur Pink, he wrote, his own joy, that Jesus' own joy had been to behold the father's countenance. The Father's presence had been His home. The Father's bosom, His dwelling place. The Father's glory He had shared before ever the world was. And during the 30 and 3 years the Son had been on earth, He enjoyed unbroken communion with the Father. Never a thought that was out of harmony with the Father's mind. Never an action but what was in harmony with the Father's will. Never a moment spent out of conscious presence. And what then must it have meant for to be forsaken now by God? The hiding of God's face from him was the most bitter ingredient of that cup which the Father had given the Redeemer to drink. In that moment, when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is bearing all the sin of mankind. He is bearing all of our sin. The burden of humanity was hanging on him in that moment. And the Son was forsaken for you and for I. Isaiah 53, or Romans 5, I'm sorry, Romans 5 says, when we were utterly helpless with no way to escape, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners who had no use for him. Even if we were good, we wouldn't really expect anyone to die for us, though of course that might be barely possible. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since by his blood he did all this for us as sinners, how much more will he do for us now that he has declared us not guilty? Now he will save us from all God's wrath to come. And since when we were his enemies, we were brought back to God by the death of his son. What blessings we must have now for us now that we are his friends and he is living within us. So now rejoice in this wonderful new relationship with God, all because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done in dying for our sins, making us friends of God. Romans 5, 6 through, 6 through 11. In those nine words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They encapsulate the fullest meaning of all divine love, 
they encapsulate the fullest meaning of all divine justice. The two of them held in perfect justice, in perfect balance, something we cannot fathom in our world. Perfect love, perfect balance. Perfect love poured out on humanity. Perfect justice dispensed in all the person of Jesus. He was the perfect expression of love. He is the only one able to satisfy the judgment against you and I. And he was the only one willing to obey the Father for those who were undeserving and mocking. And we are those sinners that he willingly died for. Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah Thousands of years again before Christ is born. Isaiah 53 says these words. But oh, how few believe it. Who will listen? To whom will God reveal his saving power? In God's eyes, he was like a tender shoot, green and shot up, sprouting from a root in dry, sterile land. Here is Isaiah speaking of Jesus, the Messiah. But in our eyes, there was no attractiveness at all, nothing to make us want him. We despised him and rejected him, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we didn't care. And yet it was our grief he bore, our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and bruised for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was lashed that we might be healed. We, every one of us, have strayed like sheep. We, who have left God's past to follow our own. We, yet God had laid on him the guilt and the sins of each one of us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he never said a word. He was brought as a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he stood silent before the ones condemning him. From prison and trial they laid him away to his death. But who among the people of that day realized that it was their sins that he was dying for, that he suffered for their punishment? He was buried like a criminal in a rich man's grave, but he had done no wrong and had never spoken an evil word. But it was the Lord's good plan to bruise him and to fill him with grief. However, when his soul had been made an offering for sin, then he shall have a multitude of children and many heirs. He will live again, and God's program will prosper in his hands. And, And when he sees all that is accomplished by the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. And because of what he's experienced, my righteous servant shall be make many to be counted righteous before God, for he shall bear all their sins. Therefore, I will give him the honors of one who is mighty and great because he has poured out his soul into the death. He is counted as a sinner, and he bore the sins of many, and he pled with God for sinners. For sinners. He has poured out his soul unto death. He has been counted as a sinner, and he bore the sins of many. He bore the sins of you and I. Scripture confirms what most of us know in our hearts, that we are sinful, that we are deserving of punishment for those sins. But as our text has said so well, Jesus took the punishment you and I owed on himself out of love and compassion for you and I. The Apostle John wrote, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Believing 
That is what God is asking each and every one of us to do. To believe that we cannot pay the debt that we owe for our sin and to believe that the sinless and innocent Jesus in his death paid that debt for us. Believe that and that is what it takes to have eternal life and, and to accept the payment that Christ paid for you on, on the cross. To believe that means that you can be reconciled back to God. You can be in a relationship with him and you can have hope for the future. To believe that means that you can escape the shame, escape the filth and the guilt of this life and be declared righteous. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is none who are condemned before Christ for those who have placed their faith in him. If you are here tonight and you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you've never believed in his death as your penalty, then I plead with you to do so tonight. It is just too crazy to even begin to try and believe that a father would sacrifice his son for people who don't even care about them. And yet God did just that. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. It was the sins of humanity that did so. It was your sins and mine that did so. For if we were sinless, he would have no need to die. But alas, we are, we are deeply sinful. And a payment is demanded by a just God. But the only one who could do it was the sinless Christ. God's plan was to send his innocent son to pay for your sins and mine. Right now, I'm going to close with a word of prayer. But before I do so, I'm going to have a moment of silence. And if you have never, ever really talked to God ever before, or if you have never really understood that you have sin in your life and that there's a way to pay for it, then right now in this quiet moment, you in the quietness of your heart, in your own head, can talk to him and you can just say in your own words, God, I know I'm a sinner and I know that I can't pay my penalty and I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And that is what he's asking for from each and every one of us. There is nothing you can do apart from believing that Christ paid for your sins. So in this quiet moment, those of you who are Christians, I'm, playing, I'm asking you to pray for anyone in this room who might be wrestling with this decision. And those of you who aren't Christians yet, those of you who are still trying to figure this out, please wrestle with him because he loves you more than I do. I didn't send my son to save you. He sent his son to save you. Talk to him about that. You cannot ask any question that will offend him. You cannot ask any question that will anger him because he desires you to come to him. Talk to him in this silent moment right now. Let's pray.
Father, right now, I pray that there are, are folks in this room who have for the first time have understood that you paid the penalty for their sin through your own son and who are wrestling with you right now to figure out what that means and how to accept you. I pray that you would give them the very words of their heart to just express their own sin, express their desire for a Savior, and to place their faith in Christ. Father, I pray for those in this room who have walked away and they're just going through the motions, but they're here tonight. May they repent from that and may they seek you anew and confess their motions and their lack of zeal and heart and recommit their life to you tonight in this moment. And may all of us, Father, come to an understanding of the great penalty, the incredible sacrifice, the just mind-boggling, unbelievable, unthinkable thing you did by sending your Son on my behalf. Tonight, Father, we praise you and we worship you for the great sacrifice of the one that you forsake on our behalf. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. If you just now perhaps prayed for the very first time and talked to God for the very first time, I would love to know that. After the service, just come by and say, that thing you talked about, I did. That's all we have to do. But I'd love to know that you wrestled with him and you talked to him and perhaps you even trust him as your personal savior here tonight in our service. All right. We're going to observe what we call communion together. Last, last Friday night at youth group, Jared had asked the question, what is the gospel? And in my mind, I started running through all the possible definitions. Um, it, it's the Greek word that means good news. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's that we're declared righteous in God's sight because of faith in Christ. And then, and then he said, you know, perhaps when, I, when you hear that question, what is the gospel, you start thinking theological answers. Right? That's what I was doing. And he said, but you know, it's, it's more than just a theological truth. It's it's also a personal truth. It's not just the gospel. It's my gospel. It's, it's my good news. It's my story. It, it, looks, it looks like this. It's unkindness, lust, greed, idolatry, envy, selfishness, anger, pornography, pride, slander, lying, apathy, selfish ambition. It's not a list of sin. That's a list of my sin. That's a list of my sin. Peter writes, though, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And Paul wrote in the letter to the Colossians and explained, you, Michael, were dead in your sins, but God made you alive, forgiving you all your sins.
That's what it looks like. That's good news. And I turn it away from you not because of shame, but because God doesn't look at it anymore. That's my story. That's your story. That's what we remember as we take communion. There's a piece of matzah representing Christ's body on the cross and a cup of juice representing his blood. And we do it to remember. Nothing more but to remember, to give thanks for what Christ has done for us. So I'm going to ask that you spend a couple minutes just in your seat between you and the Lord in prayer, meditation, give thanks, confession, whatever you need to speak to him about. And then when you're ready, come on up to the tables. There are some gluten-free options up here, by the way, at all the tables. Come on up, take a piece of matzah and a cup of juice, take it back to your seat, and then uh, wait, and we'll take it all together. So Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Can you pray with me? Father, how do we say thank you enough for the gift of life, salvation, your forgiveness? That you would love us so much to send your son and to give him up on our behalf, Lord. But we say thank you. We love you in return. We pray that you would work in us to live the life that you sacrificed and gave yourself up for. So, Father, all praise, honor to you, to the Son, and to the Spirit. In your name's sake, we pray. Amen.